Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Before we dive in, a quick word. If you are a member of Orlando Grace Church, uh, we, it, we, this happens throughout the year, we have elder elections and deacon elections. There's a process you nominate. There isn't a process that people go through before they are finally presented in front of you to be confirmed or elected. Uh, you've pr- hopefully been well aware of this process, heard about it in the e-news and other vehicles. But we today have the opportunity, if you remember, to elect Adam Smith as an elder and Dan Sandin as a deacon. Hopefully you have your little ballot in the bulletin that you uh, got on the way in. You can fill that out. Uh, It does still say Robert Jackson, who, as you know, we hired as uh, our full-time executive director, soon to be pastor upon ordination. Um, So you can ignore that or do whatever you want. Cross it out. If you don't have a pen, as I know many people don't these days, you can borrow one from somebody next to you if they don't look creepy. And um, yeah, we find pens somewhere. If you don't have a bulletin, you can get one after and bring it back. But here's the important part. After you fill it out, those ballot boxes, I guess today they're ballot boxes, normally offering boxes. They're in the back. You can put it in there and we will count, uh, count them up. All right, so we are jumping back into Acts this fall. Uh, If you've been here for a while, you know that we, our practice is to walk through whole books of the Bible. What we do that's a little different is we walk through whole books of the Bible seasonally. So we, we do Acts, we're doing Acts right now, August to Advent, wherever we leave off in Advent, we start back again the next August. We do Matthew from January to Easter. In the summer, generally we'll try to hit something in the Old Testament or whole book of the Bible. And we do this mainly for two reasons. One's me. I just like change. And I would be really bored being in any book for a year or two years, as some people have the focus and patience to do. But more importantly, it's important to us that we would hit different genres of scripture throughout the year. So in the course of a year, a more uh, full counsel of God would be taught because we're jumping from genre to genre. So 
we're back now, halfway through Acts 11. We're finishing Acts 11, and it's probably helpful to remind us a little bit of the context that we're jumping back into. Acts chapter 7 changed everything for the church. Acts chapter 7 was when Stephen was stoned because of his faith, and at that moment, persecution began to rise all around these new Christians. You may remember uh, after that, Saul, who we would later know as the Apostle Paul, he was not a Christian yet, and he was ravaging the new church. He was literally going town to town, dragging men and women out of their homes, imprisoning them, even executing them if they did not recant of their faith. And so this, this type of persecution began to uh, get to the point that Christians who had lived generations in Jerusalem had to flee for their very safety. But what happens, as you may know, is that when Christians spread, so does Christianity. So we, we begin to see that the faith spread throughout the empire. We see the, the Samaritan come to faith. We see the Ethiopian eunuch from the far west come to faith. And then in chapter, uh, in chapter 10, we see Claudius, who is the first legit uh, Gentile convert to Christianity through, of course, the ministry of Peter. So crazy things are happening, but anyway, it's crazy on lots of levels, but what's really crazy is all that Luke is recording is exactly the way that Jesus said things would happen. All this was predicted by Jesus. And in fact, the whole book of Acts is written because there was this man named Theophilus. We don't know exactly who he was, but we know that he was asking one question. How did this small Jewish sect over in Jerusalem become this whole new religion that's conquering the empire? How did this happen? And Luke is responding, and in Acts 1.8, he kind of has a thesis for all of this book. And in short, Luke's answer to Theophilus is, be, is simply because Jesus said it would. That's, that's why this is all happening. So Acts 1.8, Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my, be my witnesses, and this is really the important part. In Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Is this not exactly what we have seen in Acts chapter one until now? So in chapters one and two, the gospel goes to Jerusalem. After that in chapter seven, the gospel goes to Judea, Samaria. In chapter 10, it goes to a Gentile for the very first time. And then now in our passage, we are, we are watching the launch of the gospel to the ends of the known earth. So that's where we are. It's, you know, I didn't plan it. That, like, this is just such a perfect stop and relaunch spot. It just providentially happened. That's the way it was. So that's, that's where we're going to spend our fall, or I guess second summer in Orlando, looking at the launch of this gospel. But as we look at this passage, there is something that is, is really difficult. There, there's a thread that I'm going to pull on this morning that can be scary and, and actually has become quite controversial in our modern culture. And that thread is that God's chosen people often live in exile. So it's like an oxymoron, chosen and in exile. Like, you, you, there's great blessing and then this feels like a curse. But that is normatively the life of God's people around the globe for 2,000 years. The book of First Peter in Peter's letter, the context is chosen exiles. This is the very first verse of Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion 
according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So what is happening when God's people find themselves in exile? It is not because God has been surprised. It isn't even just because God is allowing it. It is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So that's where we're jumping into this context of exile. And Christians, you know, especially in the West, especially in the United States, and I would say especially if you're white, there's a, there's a message here as because for us, because for hundreds of years, we have experienced a seat at the table of power. We have. Now we're increasingly finding ourselves on the margins of society, on the margins of power, not really knowing how we deal with this, not really knowing what our role is now because this is a very new and uncomfortable role for people who grew up and look like me. But what I want us to hear from this text is that this is not abnormal. This is actually where God predominantly has had his people over the course of 2,000 years, even before that in the Old Testament, as we will see, and around the globe today. So when we, I, I want to focus on this word exile for just a second, because it, it can sound like Jim's just trying to be dramatic. <laughs> I, but I choose this word exile for a very specific reason. Exile means living away from home. That, that's what exile means. And in scripture, you can largely see two different kinds of exile. In our experience, we understand there to be two different types of exile. The first type of exile is when we are geographically moved from our home. So, you know, we, that, you see that all the way going back to Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve are physically forcefully exiled from what they had known as their home. You see this in Abraham when God gives him a promise through his covenant, that promise means that he will be sent into a land in which he will be a foreigner and a sojourner the rest of his life. And of course, when you follow the history of Israel, Israel knows exile often. Israel is exiled into Egypt. Israel is exiled through a form of exile in the wandering. And then of course, when Babylon comes in, they take over Judah and Daniel and all those with them are exiled over into Babylon. So that's the, the first kind of exile. When you are taken from what you know geographically as your home and brought somewhere else. But there's another kind of exile. When you don't change, but the culture around you changes. I have a buddy who is, his name's Carlos. He's an Acts 29 pastor in New Mexico. And his family has been in New Mexico as far back as they know. And he, he has this, he, he'll tell us often, hey, my family didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. Because his family, they, they, they were a part of Mexico back in the day until the, the U.S. border shifted south. Then they found themselves in a whole new, not just a whole new culture, a whole new country with a new language and new customs. I think that's a good picture of a different kind of exile. We don't leave, but the culture around us changes fast. Does that sound kind of applicable for, for where we are? And in this passage, that's right, Mulaney, I'm glad you're here. It's, it's always better when Mulaney's here. And in this passage, we see both kinds of exile. You're going to see it in the people who leave Jerusalem and in the people who stay in Jerusalem. But exile is a normative place for God's people over the history of God's people all the way up until today. And I want to walk through this passage and learn some things about exile that I think will give us hope and comfort. I'm not saying we as Christians need to pursue persecution and exile. That's not what I'm saying. I am saying sometimes, often, that is what God has for us. 
And if that's what God has for us, we need to know what to do to be able to embrace it and live joyfully and fruitfully in it. So we're just going to walk through this passage and we're going to see six very important things about exile as we do. And the first one is that exile advances the gospel. Exile advances the gospel. So in verse 19, you see in the first three verses, Luke is reiterating the context here. He's, he's reiterating that because of Stephen's persecution, men and women have been scattered from Jerusalem. They've lived generations in the city. It is no longer safe for them. So they, they, tr- they relocate. They have enjoyed a fair amount of autonomy of power, comfort, and privilege in Jerusalem. But now, because they believe in Jesus Christ, all that has been taken from them. So this is exile. And on the surface, exile can be scary. And it can feel like bad news. And you know, it's one thing to experience like a missionary exile. Like you willingly go to the other side of the world. You understand you're gonna leave home and take on a new cultural culture. But when the cultural change is thrust upon you where you are, that can be especially scary. You, you didn't ask for this. You don't know what this is gonna mean for you and for your kids and your grandkids. But the net result of exile, as we see in this passage, is kingdom fruit, verses 20 and 21. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So we see a lot about the advancement of the gospel just in those two verses. First, well, we see that the people went. I mean, for for the gospel to go forward, people have to go and they're forced to go, but they go nonetheless. And then secondly, we see this increased willingness of people to share the gospel. And I think there, there is a direct association with exile here because When you live in a culture and you maintain a measure of social comfort and social power, inherent in sharing the gospel is the risk of losing some of that power. So if somebody doesn't embrace what it is you believe, you are going to lose some of your comfort at the very least or influence and power. But what we see is they don't have any of those things. (laughs) They don't have any of those protections. And the net result is that they're more willing to share their faith because they have none of these comforts to lose. So they're not just going, they're going with this increased willingness. And they're also going with increased gospel innovation. This part is fascinating to me. Like exile contributes to gospel innovation. So up until this point, Luke is is making clear that in Jerusalem, they were only sharing the gospel with Jews. And even after the initial dispersion, they are primarily sharing the gospel with Jews. That's what's going on. But then in Antioch, they began sharing with Hellenists. They began sharing with full Gentiles and not requiring them to be Jewish first. I mean, obviously Peter in chapter 10 opened that door, but this is crazy. This is, this is innovation that forever shaped the future of the church. And this is one of the interesting parallels between Acts and the Old Testament. Obviously in the Old Testament, you have a more extreme version of exile here. But in the Old Testament, you see the same kind of gospel innovation. There's, there's a scholar named Walter Brueggemann who has this great quote. He says, for Israel, 
Exile did not lead to an abandonment of the faith or utter despair. On the contrary, exile was the impetus that inspired the most creative literature and daring theological articulations in all of the Old Testament. So exile forces us to get innovative in, in what we do. But then, you know, I love Luke. He, he, in verse 21, he makes it clear that there is something supernatural undergirding all of this. There is something supernatural, someone supernatural going before, providing in every possible way, regardless of what's transpiring around them. And the way that Luke says it is he just, he just says, the hand of the Lord was with them. You know, this is a way of saying God's got it. God's going before you. He's going behind you. He's taking care of you in every way. This church knew that. This church believed that. You can tell. And the result was that the gospel went forward more powerfully than it ever had before. And so actually, exile does promote gospel advancement. And if this is true, and I believe I've made the case that it is, then we can logically deduce that by not having lived in exile over the past however many hundred of years here, that there has been a hindrance to the gospel going forward. That's, that's, you have to logically conclude that. And it may not feel like it when you know, churches in the 20th century are full, but as our culture changes, <laughs> And 30 million people have now left the church within my lifetime. We're officially in the largest and fastest religious shift in the history of our country. Can we not conclude that even though churches were full, they might not have been full of Christians? And so we're, we're, we're seeing, I think, a, a purifying of God's people. Again, I'm not saying I desire it. I liked being a pastor in the in like the belt buckle of the Bible belt in Oxford, Mississippi, where I got free golf because I was a pastor and free pool memberships or whatever. I liked those things. But I have to admit that coming from Oxford, Mississippi to the de-church context of Orlando, I see more gospel opportunities here for the advancement. And so we don't need to be fearful. We need to see the opportunity. Second, exile confronts our idols of power. Verse 22 says that the report of what was happening came to the church in Jerusalem. So all this craziness going on in Antioch, it gets back to Jerusalem, home base, and they send Barnabas to investigate. And so every commentary that I read, nobody knows exactly what happened in Jerusalem when the, when the news got back there, but every commentary says at some level, this is very uncomfortable, <laughs> To, to what's going on in, in Jerusalem because not only were these people who enjoyed power and comfort in their old culture before Jesus came, now they have at least retained some sense of power inside the church because Jerusalem is the, the home base of, of Christianity at this point. But what is happening is the influence is shifting from Jerusalem to Antioch. I mean, this was the moment that Jerusalem's no longer headquarters. Antioch is becoming and does become for a season the most influential church, influential church in the whole world. And so this had to feel uncomfortable. There were people back in, in Jerusalem who would have wanted these new believers to become Jewish first, to take on the law for their men to be circumcised, which would have certainly slowed the movement a little bit on the Gentile front. And, you know, and if you're a kid here and you don't know what circumcision is, this is a really important thing to understand in scripture. So I wanna tell you, if you don't know, this, during lunch you should ask your parents 
What, what does circumcision mean? And they would love to tell you because this is something that these guys in Jerusalem were wanting to happen. But now in Antioch, they're saying, no, 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 no. We're just going to jump you straight into Christianity. And at, at the very least, these men in Jerusalem had to be concerned about gospel faithfulness. You know, is everything being done on the up and up? And so they send Barnabas. And Barnabas is just like the perfect person to send. Everything we know about Barnabas, he's humble, he's caring, uh, he is more concerned with the kingdom of God than he is his own culture. He's more concerned about these Gentiles conforming to Christ rather than his culture. I mean, he, he just seems perfect in so many ways. So the church sends him as undoubtedly they have to confront their own idols of power as Christianity began and now as the influence transitions from Jerusalem over to Antioch. About three years ago, I I think it was after COVID, I'm not sure, I made a statement and I was not planning on it to be very controversial. I didn't think it was very controversial, but it did make some people mad, people who I'm friends with, they're no longer in this church. But my statement was, if by God's grace, I get the privilege of pastoring this church for the next 25 years. I know that a large part of my ministry is going to be walking white males through the loss of power, white Christian males, through the loss of power in our culture. I mean, it's just, this is what's happening, to bring gospel hope in the midst of a cultural transition. And I didn't anticipate that being a controversial statement, but people would get angry and, and they would make reasonable arguments like, Jim, do you not realize that when Christians are in power, we get to protect the values of our society? And, and I appreciate that argument because certainly we as a church are called to be salt in the earth and salt does have a preserving quality. But the way that God has historically used his people to be salt in culture has been from the margins, not been from the center of power. We can still do this. And I would argue even maybe do this more effectively from the margin than from the center. And I don't think any historian that I've ever read questions that this early church, the fact that they were doing this from the margins of society was the impetus for one of, if not the greatest explosions of Christianity, explosive growth that we have ever seen. And, you know, God just doesn't show this. He says it. Because then people would come and say, all right, Jim, if you're saying we should embrace exile, are, are you saying we should just not engage in culture anymore? And the answer is no. Our good is tied up in the good of the culture in many ways. So we vote, we pray for the culture, we help people who need it. And this is exactly what God tells his people in the Old Testament, what they are to do in exile. I'm reading from Jeremiah chapter 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent, again, not just surprise, not allowing, I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Seek the welfare of the city where it is I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So we are to engage the culture. We are to be salt, but we're not necessarily going to be doing it from the most powerful places, and that's okay. That's been the normative experience of God's people for thousands of years. 
the fastest rate of Christian growth, as I've said, you know, we, the fast, let me say this, the fastest rates of Christian growth I know of across space and time on this globe has been when it has happened from the margins. So certainly we know that it happened in early Roman Empire and it's happening today in China where there are more Christians there than here now. But, and they have no power and influence and comforts because of their faith, but the faith is exploding. Alistair Begg is probably my favorite leading preacher, a living preacher, excuse me. I don't know of any tally that they lead, that living preacher. And you know, my hope is that even if the United States goes to pot, and I hope it doesn't, but that I'll be a pastor that will bring hope as our circumstances change. And in the words of Alistair Begg, even if the worst happens, the kingdom of God is fine. The kingdom of God is unsmashable and there is an embassy to that kingdom in every single neighborhood that we call the local church. We will be fine. The kingdom will be fine. Which leads me to the third thing. Exile is when we depend on the Lord the most. When Barnabas arrived in Antioch, he saw the grace of God on these people and I love he wasn't jealous, he wasn't threatened. Luke says his heart was glad. He was glad when he saw what was going on in this church. And he gave them one exhortation that Luke records for us. He simply says, remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. That is your only hope in exile, Antioch, and Orlando Grace Church. That one exhortation, depend on the Lord. Lean on him because he is the only thing you need. And as exile happens, increasingly we're gonna feel it. My kids are at an age where they're not always convinced that I'm always right. <laughs> that they'll learn when they're about 25. Dad's always right. And, and, you know, my instructions are questioned increasingly as they grow up. And sometimes they give me the impression, maybe I misunderstand, but the impression that they would be better off on their own and running things the way they want to run things. Until there's a loud thunderstorm. Or the power goes out at night or somebody gets lost at Disney, <laughs> or we watch a scary movie. And you know what, when things get scary, you know what they want most in the world? Their parents. And there's a picture for us. As the world gets scary, as the context changes, we're more naturally going to want the only one that we can really depend on, the only one who has eternal promises for us and through us. And I don't want us to be naive. If we enter into a season of real exile, a culture changes around us, it's gonna be difficult. It will bring difficulties that we shouldn't pursue or pray for, but we need to understand what to do when they come because it reminds us of the only sure hope that we have. So there's a, a woman named Joni Erickson Tata. I'm curious, how many of you have heard of Joni Erickson Tata? Okay, a lot, You're, you did better than the first service. She has been in a wheelchair for about 50, over 50 years at this point, I think, uh, because of a diving accident when she was young. And I first heard this quote probably about seven or eight years ago, and it has, it, it has uncomfortably stayed with me ever since. And it really gets to the heart of what we're talking about here. She said, I sure hope I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. 
She says, now I know that's not theologically correct, but I hope to bring it and to put it in a little corner of heaven and then in my new perfect glorified body, standing on grateful glorified legs. I'll stand next to my savior holding his nail pierced hands and I'm gonna say, thank you, Jesus. And he will know what, that I mean it because he knows me. He'll recognize me from the fellowship we're now sharing in his sufferings. And I will say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. I never would have happened Sorry, it never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. And now her, her suffering wasn't obviously a result of this kind of social exile. But wheelchair or no wheelchair, we are all in a form of exile just living in this earth. Because of our sin, we live in bodies that are going to break. They're gonna stop working, all of us at some point. Unless Jesus comes back before we die, our bodies will stop working. We live in this form of exile. But when we're there, whether it's through cultural exile or, or the reality of living in a wheelchair, having some other difficulty in your life, we become most aware that we were not made for this world. This world is not our home and we most naturally long for that new home and the one who has made that home and is bringing us there. It is an exile that we see our dependence and need of the Lord most clearly. Fourth, exile shows us our new and better identity. There is a verse in our passage that every time I read Acts, I stop and it just, it fascinates me. Yeah, this verse is, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Jesus didn't come up with the title Christian. You know, it, wasn't, it wasn't in Acts chapter one or two, this is Acts chapter 11. And you notice what it, it doesn't say? In the church in Antioch, they first called themselves Christians. This is a name given to them by outsiders. Gentile pagans are the ones who came up with the term Christian. Because the, the, the church, we had ways of identifying ourselves. We, they, they called themselves the way. They called themselves di the disciples. But they were such an enigma in Antioch that the outsiders had to come up with a way to describe this group of people. Because there was, there was, su there was the main divide in that time was Jew and Gentile. There was nothing in the culture that brought these two groups of people. And in fact, everything about the culture pushed these two groups of people apart. But now you have a third group of people in Antioch that are Jews and Gentiles together, sharing the things that they have in common, doing life with each other, eating in each other's homes. And so they need to create a name for these people and they called them the Christ ones. That's where we get the word Christians. They got their name there because their identity was not only clear to them, but clear to everybody outside of the community as well. Now, God's people, we have always been identified with God over context. So this was true in Israel. Her identity was given to her at Sinai in the wilderness before they were given the promised land. So, so do you see what happens? Exile then, because the promise was given before the land, exile doesn't mean you're gonna lose the promise. Your identity as Christ ones, bringing this 2,000, well, more than 2,000 years later, you know, God didn't make his promise to the church when we were socially acceptable, popular, and cool. 
And so, nor were we ever promised those things in the beginning. So when those things are removed from us, we don't need to worry about losing the most important thing that we have, which is our identity as Christ once. Then there is actually a blessing in it that as these competing identities are stripped away, identities like comfort and power or whatever it may be, national politics, whatever, when those identities are taken away because they don't want to identify with us anymore, then the most important identity we have just naturally comes to the forefront. And so what they had was an identity that transcended their ethnicities, which is a really big deal in that culture, so much so that the surrounding culture renamed them because it was so weird. They had an identity bigger than Jew or Gentile. In 2020 and 21, lots of tensions came into the churches, all kinds of tensions, predominantly racial tensions. And I had somebody in that season who's no longer in this church anymore, came to me and as we were having these race conversations, this person said, there are churches for those types of people. Meaning, either not white or not conforming to my culture. Do you realize this is about the most unchristian thing you can possibly say? Because it not only undermines the, what's going on in this passage, it undermines our chief identity as Christ ones above everything, including ethnicity or whatever else might divide us. There is no church for those types of people. The church is for all types of people. And that is the reason that people had to name the Christ ones. They didn't know what else to do. There was no other identity they could put on them but their chief identity in Jesus Christ. And so this identity, it's going to be true whether you're in exile or whether you're on the throne of Christendom. You're gonna have this identity, but there's just something about being in exile that strips us of these competing identities and our chief identity is just clearer. It's easier. It's easier in exile not to have these other things divide us and tear us apart, which is why I think a lot of the chaos that we've had in the church recently has happened because we have not had the blessing of living in exile. And we let these other competing identities divide us. Which leads very naturally to the fifth thing that we say about, that we see about exile. Not only is our new identity true, there are some things that we need to be reminding ourselves and teaching other things about this newer and better identity. And so the fifth thing that we see is exile requires discipleship. So we see in verse 25 that Barnabas went to Tarsus. He looked for Saul. They came back and put together the most exciting worship experience that they could possibly produce. That's not what it says. I'm sure they worshiped and I'm sure it was exciting. But they brought Saul back to teach this church for a whole year. That's what they teach the Bible all all the time. Every day of the week there's teaching going on. They were discipling for a whole year. That's all they focused on. And I love Barnabas just warms my soul and makes me a little insecure that I'm not more like him. But, you know, he goes and he sees all that's going on in in Antioch and he immediately recognizes I'm in over my head here. I need somebody else. So I'm going to go find Saul. 
You know, he, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knows all of the scripture and he's a Christian. I need to go find him in Tarsus, which contrary to popular belief, you know, Saul did not change his name to Paul. That's not a thing. It, it was just Saul's his Hebrew name. Greek is his, Paul is his Greek name. So depending on whatever language is being spoken is his name, Saul or Paul. So here we're still in the, the Hebrew speaking part of the story. So he's still called Saul. And Barnabas goes to get him. When I think of the world we are entering into, how much teaching and discipleship do we need? Much less our friends and our kids and our grandkids if we are going to thrive in a state of exile, if that is in fact what God has for us. Discipleship has to be one of the main things that we're investing ourselves in, that we're giving towards and this is why I, we don't do everything perfect to this church. I don't ever want us to be a church that's like, we're God's way for the church. But there are some things that we're really trying to do and really trying to grow in. And discipleship is one of those things. This is why whoever teaches up here teaches the Bible. We're not teaching from anything else. We're teaching the Bible. This is why we invest in adult equipping hour. This is why we, we invest in grace kids. I mean, this is why our youth, as fun as I hear it is, the main, the main goal is discipleship, that they would grow up to understand how it is we are to live in this world. The fanciest and flashiest, most entertaining worship services alone aren't going to accomplish that. It has to be a lifelong pursuit of discipleship, of ourselves and discipling others. When we have uh, elder, um, when we have officer, uh, installations, and when we have new member installations, both of which we are going to have in the near future, they make a vow that they will always, as long as they're here, seek to see the Bible taught in this church. This is a, a core tenet of who we are. This is why we're doing our fall nine-week Sunday evening Bible study. Well, I don't know that we've ever, ever had a Sunday evening any like service consistently ever. We're going to do it for nine weeks. We're going to walk through the Sermon on the Mount from five to seven. This is something for all ages. We'll eat together. We'll have small group discussion, large group teaching. And I, I don't think I've ever really pushed anything like I've pushed this. And, and by God's grace, I'm really thankful. There's over 125 people already registered. But I want everyone we have about 400 people here on a Sunday. I, I want everyone to be a part of this because I believe that our needs in terms of community and discipleship intersect at this Sunday evening service. And, and so this isn't, what we're doing isn't exhaustively discipleship. What we're doing is an organized piece of discipleship that relationships might blossom and then from the organized comes the organic. And people are meeting in coffee shops and I don't know, wherever, wherever you meet, breakfast places, I don't know, YMCA's, wherever you go, like the, people are going to be engaged in discipleship. And I feel so strongly, I, I do, here, there's a group of you I feel really for. Those of you who live more than 25 minutes away, okay, that's hard. Like I get it, I'm, I'm not gonna be naive and trite or whatever. Like that, that's hard to come here and then come back. My commitment to you is if you come for a few Sundays and it's just not working, we'll give you your $20 back. I just, I think once you come, you'll see that it's a blessing and what you're also gonna see is you're a blessing to others by being there. So if you haven't registered, I hope that didn't feel like too much of a commercial, but it's in the text, so I get to do it. But our hope is that OGC would be a place where the worship is great and the discipleship is plentiful. All right, then last thing, the sixth thing we see about exile is exile makes us generous people. 
Exile makes us generous. Remember, we're, we're not called to live in a commune or a holy huddle or, or you know, just be naive to what's going on outside of this world. We are to be generous with each other and with those outside of this church. We are to help people and serve people and, and vote for people's human flourishing and all those things. We are to engage in that way. And if you need any evidence to that end, look no farther than that passage I read from Jeremiah, in exile, you are to pray for the culture, the the city that you're in, you are to seek the good of the communities because their personal good is tied to your personal good. That's what Jeremiah says, but this passage, it fleshes it out a little bit more. You have this prophet, well these prophets, one of whom is named Agabus, and they come into the church in Antioch and they prophesy the coming of a famine. And we know historically this happened in the 40s under the reign of Claudius. The Nile River flooded so much that it destroyed the Egyptian harvest. So the price of grain went through the roof and people were were starving. There was a famine. And so because God's people knew about this famine, they were able to begin to stockpile or give toward that end, specifically to the believers in Jerusalem and the Middle East area. And they didn't do it just for, you know, it wasn't only for people who were inside. We know that they were then generous to those who were outside the church. I did read this in a book this week, which means it's got to be true, I guess. That this was the first recorded instance in human history of non-governmental humanitarian aid. If you find that to be false, let me know. But we see that these people are generous. They're generous hearts. They have this unusual generosity because they've abandoned this illusion of being able to hang on to comfort and power and influence in society. It's not not there anymore. And they're, they're kind of forced in a way to be generous to others because you can't live in exile, I don't think, and be stingy. You, you just, you, the, the whole way that we think in that context changes significantly. And so the result, not only are believers provided for by God's grace in the area of food, but their generosity seeps outside of the church walls. And so we see people coming in through their generous hearts. So it's providing for Christians and it's making new Christians. And exile has a real way of making us generous. So much so, as I said in the beginning, that the ways that they were interacting as exiles would be the impetus for this explosive growth in our faith all the way to the point that four centuries later, the emperor himself claimed Jesus as Lord. All this was set up through exile. And so we gotta circle back to the main question in the very beginning. Can the church flourish in this new society? And the answer is absolutely yes. I mean, this, this is the normative way that God's people interact with its culture from exile. And God, again, doesn't surprise him. It isn't just that he's allowing it. He has purpose in it to sanctify his people, to call us back to himself, to be generous to others, to bless others, that his kingdom would grow both in depth and breadth. Exile promotes all of these things. In Isaiah 24, Isaiah prophesies the shaking of Jerusalem. God shook his people's earthly city to show them the unshakable nature of their citizenship in heaven. And I would be the first to admit the idea of exile sounds scary. 
It does. For, for me, for my kids, Lord willing, grandkids one day, there are lots of pieces of it that sound scary. And it's easy to start to doubt God's goodness towards us when that reality gets closer and closer. And when you and I are tempted to doubt God's goodness in this changing culture, we need to remind ourselves that no one has ever known exile the way that Jesus Christ has. Jesus willingly left the throne room of heaven where there was nothing but power and glory and honor and fame, humbled himself by emptying self, taking on the form, the likeness of a human and living a painful, sorrowful life, culminating on the cross where he experienced a different kind of exile. He willingly no longer received the goodness and the love and the mercy of God, but had only his wrath and his justice on him that he didn't deserve in our place. He took that exile that we might never know that exile. And as long as we live in exile, in, this, in a form of exile in this world, we can take comfort that we'll never know that exile because Jesus paid it for us. It can never be taken from us. And so today, the gospel is in a real way the reason we're going to experience certain exile. It just is. But it's also the hope that we have in that exile that we will go to a home one day with our Lord and Savior where exile will not even be in our vocabulary. That's the hope in exile. That's the purpose in exile. And I'm not saying we need to have prayer services to wish exile upon anybody or persecution upon anybody. But if that's what God has for this church, then we're gonna know what it takes to embrace it and walk into it through generations. Because this is the norm for God's people, people. What we've experienced is an enigma. And I think this church will be ready if that's what he has for us. Let's pray. God, we are thankful. I, I'm, I just want to say I'm thankful for the freedoms and the comforts that we've experienced because of our grandparents and the sacrifices that have made for us. But I acknowledge too that that is an enigma if we're going to walk faithfully with you. And I pray if you have exile in people's future, whether it's people being sent as missionaries or going back as natives to difficult areas in the world where all they've ever known is exile. God, would you allow all of us, whatever situation we find ourselves in, if we never move and find ourselves in a real form of exile here, would you give us what it takes through your spirit and your word to embrace that exile? to see the purpose, and above all, to see your faithfulness through it. God, would we lean into you more deeply? Would we be the salt of the earth? Would we be the light on the, the city that's a light on a hill? You have so many promises for us, God. Let us worship you and praise you, knowing, as we will sing in just a minute, that Jesus has, in fact, paid it all for us. God, we love you and we praise you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.